0: I'm Kevin Moore, and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined with author and researcher Dr. Gregory Little to discuss the American sleeping prophet Edgar Casey and Greg's search for Atlantis. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll be right back. Mr. show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. Listening to The Moore Show. And here's your host, Kevin Moore. Okay, welcome back to the show. I'm about to be joined with our first guest, Dr. Greg Little. Uh, But just a bit of bio on Greg. Uh, Greg Little is a psychologist turned explorer and documentary maker. Since 2003, Greg and his wife Laura have been actively searching the Bahamas for archaeological ruins that might be linked to Atlantis. Working with the Edgar Casey organisation in its search for the Atlantis project, the Littles have conducted wide explorations around Bimini, Andreas and the Great Bahama Bank. Their explorations have been featured on the National Geographic Channel, the Learning Channel and the History Channel. Greg is co-author of the books Edgar Casey's Atlantis, Mound Builders, Ancient South America and has over 30 books in print. Greg, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure being back. I know it's been some time since I was here, but we'll we'll see what we can do. Uh, we have a lot of new information, and uh, we'll just take it from there.
0: Okay. Well, today's show is going to be based around Edgar and uh, Atlantis, so let's begin with, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Greg.
1: Uh, well, actually, I'm a, a psychologist by profession. Uh, I specialize in the area of criminal psychology, and I have done that since 19... 19- Seventy-five. Uh, I have numerous publications and textbooks in professional fields Everything from counseling textbooks to textbooks in psychopharmacology And the criminal personality uh, And I got interested in all this stuff back many, many, many years ago When, when I actually lived in Huntsville, Alabama uh, My father worked for a contractor with NASA Uh, back in 1964, as I recall, and of course I was just a kid then, Uh, but I guess uh, in the UK the term kid, does that mean child, or does it mean That's right, no,
0: child, that's right.
1: (laughs) Okay, child, I was a child, Uh, but anyway, uh, I've always been interested in alternative things, Uh, anything from UFOs to uh, Atlantis to the Bermuda Triangle and things like that, and have had a really big interest in Native Americans and Native American mounds for a long, long time. Uh, But that's kind of my background, uh, and I've been uh, working in the the field of criminal justice and criminal psychology, like I said, since 1975. So that's my real profession, and I I am still very active in that field.
0: So how long have you been studying the uh, subject of Atlantis, and, and what inspired you?
1: Actually, uh, I was interested in Atlantis long ago, but it just really absolutely fell out of interest. I'm not exactly sure why. I think I came to the conclusion that uh, it may be hopeless to find it, or maybe it was nonsense. I really don't remember. But I do recall what got my interest back, and it it actually was a, a British writer by the name of Andrew Collins who became a very good friend of mine. Andrew wrote a book called Gateway to Atlantis some years ago. Uh, I believe it was 2001 that Gateway to Atlantis came out. And it, we brought Andrew to the Edgar Casey organization, which is called the ARE in Virginia Beach, to speak. And that was the first time that I met him. And in his book, Gateway to Atlantis, Andrew had a photo that had been taken in 1969 from the air. And while Andrew believed that Cuba uh, was the main island of Atlantis, in his book this photo showed what looked like a triple ring of stones off of South Andros Island, which is the largest of the Bahama Islands. And South Andros Island is actually in Cuban airspace because it's only about 25 miles from Cuba. Uh, When I spoke with Andrew uh, at that conference, I decided, along with my wife, that we could actually find this triple ring of stone, the stone circle that looked a lot like Avebury, as a matter of fact, and that we could find this thing from the air and then visit it on water. So that is where I got interested. I just figured that there are a lot of these mysteries that had first been found in the 60s and then in the 70s, that had been seen by people like Charles Berlitz and J. Manson Valentine and Dmitry Rebakov, who was a pretty famous oceanographer. They had found these things from the air and taken photos, but because of two things. First, Andros is very remote. It's extremely difficult to go anywhere on the western side on the Great Bahama Bank. Uh, in that area because it's so shallow and there's really nowhere to refuel. You can't bring big boats in, so it was very hard for them to get to. But secondly, there was no GPS then. There was no global positioning system. So they could see something from the air and know the basic general location. But unless you had a really precise way to locate it with GPS, they would go out on boats, and they couldn't find any of this stuff, which once you get out on the water and you start looking for these things, you realize quickly that they're very hard to see, even when you're right on top of them. So that is really what got us started. Andrew had this, this formation in his book, uh, and I simply had the time and the desire and the resources to go and do this. So my wife and I started this project, and when we did it, when we began the project we found this circle pretty easily we found a lot of other circles pretty easily and then we just started looking at one place after another and then the locals got interested in us, the people in the Bahamas and they started telling us about things that people didn't know about and so we just started searching more and more and more but it was really the British author Andrew Collins who got me into that and by the way the stone circle was not a stone circle it looks like a stone circle, sure. and even when you're right on it, standing next to it, looking at it, it looks like standing stone, but it's actually what's called barrel coral. It's barrel coral and sponge, and the sponge when that it, 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 it was growing in concentric circles, in rings, when you stand next to it, and when the sponge or coral is exposed, it looks exactly like standing stone. But it's not. Uh, it's a natural formation. Uh, it becomes circular because of movements of fish and crustaceans. Uh, but that got us into it. Okay. That's sort of the story.
0: Okay. So how does Edgar Casey uh, fit into your work? I mean, how does he fit into your search for Atlantis?
1: Well, uh, Edgar Casey, of course. Uh, Edgar Casey is America's famous psychic of all time. Uh, Casey did approximately 15,000 psychic readings. And what makes Casey really unique is that he's probably the only psychic in history who virtually everything that he said during his psychic readings was written down. Uh, It's now available on, uh, members can actually go onto the ARE website and look at every single reading and do a search of words and terms or dates. Uh, but there's, there was a CD-ROM some years ago the ARE put out. And so you can search all 15,000 of Casey's readings and look at them and see exactly what he wrote. It's actually in the ARE. Uh, the, his, his readings are in bound volumes of books. And there are 400 bound volumes that contain over 50,000 pages. So during Casey's career, everything he said in a psychic reading was written down and that's what really makes him unique. So it, it gave people the opportunity to see how accurate this man's
0: psychic Okay. Worked. Okay. Now the ARE, is that um part of Casey's organization?
1: The ARE it stands for the Association for Research and Enlightenment. It is actually the umbrella of all the Edgar Casey uh, related organizations. It's the it's headquarters of, yes, the, the, the Casey organization. The It has a sub-organization called the Edgar Casey Foundation, which funds research in a whole bunch of areas, including medicine, uh, various health things, and uh, spirituality, and also archaeological research. And it, there's another organization there called Atlantic University, which is a... a American University that was uh, started by the the, the Casey Group. Uh, But that's headquartered in Virginia Beach. It has approximately 30,000 members and somewhere around 250,000 what are called friends of the ARE who aren't uh, card-carrying members, uh, but they are, uh, oh, they have, uh, they're, they're associated with the organization. So it's a, it's a pretty large organization. It's in virtually all countries in the world, and in fact, the UK the UK actually has a fairly large number of members in it.
0: Okay. Now, going back to Casey, then, how did he work? I mean, did he go through a trance to bring the readings through?
1: Well, uh, it started out. Casey was born in 1877, and that's relevant because uh, at that time, of course, there was a lot of psychic, uh, psychic. Manifestations going on around the world A lot of interest in uh, paranormal research Uh, But Casey Casey started when a hypnotist A stage hypnotist went through his hometown Which was in Hopkinsville, Kentucky And at that time, hypnotism was called mesmerism And a stage hypnotist came into town Edgar was extremely well known In that little community of Hopkinsville Uh, He was a local celebrity but Egger had lost his voice. uh he had a lot of health problems himself uh he was uh the people in the audience asked uh Edgar to go on stage to see if the hypnotist could bring his voice back and he did go up on the stage. The hypnotist was able to bring his voice back under hypnosis that got a but when he came out of the hypnosis, he couldn't speak again. That got a local hypnotist who was also a physician interested. And this position then brought Edgar in and put him under a hypnotic trance. And in the trance, Edgar cleared his voice, and Edgar told the hypnotist what was wrong with him. He gave, It was like a physical diagnosis. Uh, he told the hypnotist to then make a suggestion to Edgar's body, like it's a third person. It said, so ask Edgar Casey to increase the amount of blood flow around his throat. And so the hypnotist was kind of stunned by this. Again, this hypnotist was a physician. And so he told Edgar laying there, he made the suggestion, increase the amount of blood flow to your neck, and and all the people present saw Edgar's throat become bright red. Edgar then coughed and spit up some blood. When he was brought to, when he was brought out of the hypnotic trance, he was able to speak. Now, that got the the physician extremely interested in him, and he decided, well, if this guy under a trance can diagnose himself, why can't he diagnose some of my other patients? So the physician did this. He hypnotized him again and started asking him uh, questions about a various number of patients the physician had, and of course, in those days, uh, medicine wasn't very well advanced. So Edgar, without seeing the patient, without knowing their medical condition, only knowing their name, was able to diagnose very accurately, as far as the physician was concerned, what was wrong with them, and then he recommended a course of treatment. Well, the, the physician carried this, these, these recommended treatments out, and it became... Interesting to a lot of other physicians, and a, and a large group of physicians started traveling to Hopkinsville to test out this guy, Edgar Casey. They then, in 1910, they made a presentation about him uh, at, in New York City at a medical conference. And the New York Times happened to have a reporter there who wrote an article then about this amazing, uneducated man who under a hypnotic trance was able to diagnose people's problems and so that's really where Edgar became known as the sleeping prophet they called him a doctor when he was under uh, his hypnotic trance but Edgar learned very quickly that he was able to lay down, close his eyes he'd, he'd fold his hands over his solar plexus he'd take a few deep breaths and he would go into a hypnotic trance on his own and then another person, which they called a conductor, it was usually his wife or a close friend or a uh, a pretty famous physician in the United States by the name of Thomas House, uh, would come and be the conductor. He would sit there and ask Edgar the questions. So they'd have questions prepared. Edgar would then give answers. So people started sending letters, and physicians started sending letters to Edgar asking him to do psychic readings on patients where they simply couldn't figure out what was wrong with them. In 1923, uh, up to 1923, yeah. he did nothing but give these health readings. And then in 1923, he was asked uh, to go to, it was actually Dayton, Ohio, uh, and a man by the name of Lammers started asking Casey esoteric questions, questions about the Essenes, questions about, um, oh, ancient history, the Egyptians, and suddenly everything changed. Edgar started uh, talking about past lives, he started talking about uh, ancient history, and he's, he's talked about virtually every single aspect of ancient history, every area of the world that you can imagine. Uh, and those are called, the readings where he talks about past lives are called life readings. And then there's a lot of readings that are really about history. And that's where Atlantis came in. And Lemuria, ancient China is in it, and India, you name it, Edgar talked about it.
0: And what were some of his big predictions then? Can you remember any?
1: Well, he, they did ask him about a lot of predictions. Uh, they asked him about numerous things. Most people that had readings were interested in themselves should I marry this person? Should I marry that person? Should I move to this place for a job? Uh, a lot of people were interested in the stock market. A lot of people were interested in money. Uh, Egger did predict the 1929 stock market crash. Uh, some people were actually saved because of his predictions, and others could not believe that the stock market was going to crash, so they didn't pull their money out, even though Egger told them that they should. And He started talking about this in 1928, and I believe the, stock, the main crash was in October of 29, uh, but up to that time, he was consistently telling people, get out of the stock market, pull everything out. So that was one of the things that he talked about. Uh, he also, he uh, predicted, well, he actually has uh, uh, numerous predictions, and, and as far as I'm concerned, a lot of the predictions are a little difficult to follow, because yeah. of the way the questions were asked. He only answered the questions he was asked, but... For example, somebody might, might ask him, what specific date and time is this event going to occur? And he seldom answered that. And the reason he, he wouldn't answer it, he said over and over that the future is not set. There is no such thing as predestiny. That given the current circumstances, here is what will probably happen, but that people can choose to go different ways. Some people believe he predicted 9/11 here in America. Uh, there are some very interesting things about that. Uh, I don't. I, to me, the most interesting thing is he predicted the uh, the longitude and latitude of it of 9/11, and he predicted where the destruction was going to come from, uh, which was Boston. Uh, the towers got hit by planes. One of the planes flying out of Boston. And he seems to have predicted some of that. But that's iffy. Yeah. I'm not, I, I don't say that any of that is really true. I just don't know. I know this. Uh, if you want to talk about what gives Casey his validity, uh, there have been numerous uh, studies that have been published in medical journals, mainstream medical journals, that have consistently found that Casey's health readings were correct between 82 to 88 percent of the time, the average is around 86, uh, and that's been in numerous studies have been done independently. Uh, in fact, the American Medical Association actually dubbed Edgar Casey the father of holistic health in America because of his health readings. But that's what gives him his credibility. His things about Atlantis. Uh, one of his predictions, which is very interesting, was that he said this was in 19. 19- uh, 1940, Edgar Casey said that a portion of Atlantis would rise again in 1968 and 1969 and that it would be near Bimini in the Bahamas uh, so that's, that's probably the most specific prediction about something that would be found that's associated with Atlantis and those two years, 68 and 69, is when a lot of discoveries were made in the Bahamas, mainly from the air, although uh, the Bimini Road, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about, was found on water uh, in, in
0: 1968.
1: Okay. So that, that's about as specific as it gets with Casey.
0: So two-thirds of his readings then were based on health issues, and the others were, I suppose, Atlantis and Life Beyond the Planets.
1: Well, uh, actually, two-thirds were health readings. That's correct. Out of the 15,000 readings, two-thirds were health readings. Uh, and then you get these other readings, which are readings on history or mainly life readings where an individual would come in and they were concerned about their status in life and where they sh- what direction they should move in life and where they came from. Not necessarily health readings, but questions like, what kind of job is best for me? What am I best suited for? And that's a third of them. And in those, in that third, uh, a total of, of, it's about 4.9% of all 15,000 readings mention Atlantis. And those are generally past life readings where he tells an individual who came in for a life reading that they had a life in Atlantis and then there there was a lot of detail that he would give that it has enabled people like us, my wife and I, to look into those readings and find out where these people lived, what we might find if we actually went out and searched these areas.
0: Okay. So what did he say about life in Atlantis? What was it like?
1: You know, uh, I disagree with what some of the people who interpret Casey have said. Uh, Casey actually said that people lived very much like we do today. It doesn't mean that they had automobiles and that they flew around in jet planes. Um, he does talk about flight at the time, but if you and so uh, and he talks about there's a there's three readings that indicate some sort of extraterrestrial influence. Um, one of them is very specific about alien beings coming in to actually it was in the Yucatan, and it was before. Uh, 1492, but it was in the Yucatan somewhere, where some sort of aliens landed and had an interaction with the people there and left. Um, I almost forgot exactly what your question was, but it, it, it's about the way life was in Atlanta. That's right. He doesn't talk about space travel. He doesn't say that they were uh, flying around in jet planes. In one, one question he was asked, at the highest point of Atlantis, which actually, it's believed, that, according to Casey, Atlantis reached its high point around 26,000 B.C., or 28,000 years ago, and he said that uh, he was asked very specifically, tell me about a, what the flying craft was, or what were these people flying in at the highest point of Atlantis's technological development, and what he, what he described quite specifically was what, what would be a hot air balloon, and the balloon was actually formed out of uh, elephant hides that had been sewn and fused together. Now, what, what, what gets really unusual in this, where the high technology comes from, is how they filled this thing and how they, how they navigated and how they propelled it. Casey said that the, the Atlanteans had found a way to take crystals large, almost quartz crystals, although he never really calls them quartz, but he says they're crystals, and that they could collect the sun's rays and focus them and and produce heat from that. And that heat, this focused beam from these crystals, was able to fill these hot air balloons and also propel them, and that they also used the beams uh, that came out of the crystal, again from the sun's rays, to navigate with and to communicate with. And these crystals became the power source of Atlantis. It provided the power. A lot of the devices he talks about that they used to, for example, move water or pump water or to heat homes, uh, to do almost everything, the devices all appear to be mechanical in nature, almost like 17 or 1800s, or the kind of thing you might attribute to da Vinci. Uh, where they would have, you know, very complex mechanical devices that would be operated through gears, that would be operated through moving water or almost beam power. And that is how I interpret Casey. Others say, no, these beams that he's talking about must be lasers. And, of course, at the time, uh, he actually said that in 1958, the source uh, of uh, the power and the energy... uh, specifically that they used to lift the stones up to build the pyramids would be discovered. He said it was going to be discovered in 1958. Now, in 1958, there were two major things, uh, one of which I believe is what he was talking about, and the other one is not. But the Maser, uh, which was the forerunner of the laser, was discovered in 1958. And that is why so many people believe Edgar Casey was talking about lasers and death rays. Um, the other thing found in 1958 is far, to me, is far more interesting, and it is that that is when the first paragliders were made. Um, and a few years ago, a um, a professor at California Technical uh, Institute, uh, Caltech, which is one of the top uh, universities in the United States, she discovered a way to lift huge stones. Uh, with uh, parasails, um, and 1958 is when the, the first parasail was actually developed. And these stones uh, that her name's Maureen Clemens, Dr. Maureen Clemens, she actually uh, made a documentary where they built a pyramid in Mexico using these parasails. Uh, and there's this really neat film where you can see students walking around in a field. One student with two little guide wires the student's holding, and there's a parasail, and they're walking around with 5,000, 6,000-pound stones, just walking around the field with them, and the stones are floating in the air. So it's, it's very curious. So people have to decide for themselves what he meant by this, and that's also what the skeptics point to. There's different ways to interpret this, and the truth is there are different ways to interpret Casey.
0: Okay, so we they they could have had levitation devices, but then again, they could have been these parasailing devices.
1: Yeah, there you go. Which he he talked about floating. He said the stones floated, so some people have said, "Oh, they must have had an anti-gravity device." But a floating stone would be a stone that's just floating in the air, and he said that it that the source was the source of all energy, the 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 energy source. That, that caused these stones to float buoyancy was definitely in it because he said that it's the same it's the same principle that allows a an iron ship to float in water and that is buoyancy you have to have a greater upward force than a downward force and buoyancy is the principle that a parasail uses to lift up stones off the ground okay that's how I interpret it anyway
0: Okay Greg, we're gonna take a break there, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at (laughs) themoreshow.co.uk Listening to the Moore Show, and here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm currently joined here with uh, Dr. Greg Little. Now, Greg, just before the break there, I was going to ask you what were the Hall of Records?
1: Ah, oh my, yeah, there you go. That's probably the, the thing that's most interesting. Casey said that, that um, this is another one of the readings that indicates some sort of an uh, extraterrestrial influence. What Casey said was that in 10,500 B.C., one of the high priests of Atlantis got a communication from a, a source. He doesn't call it extraterrestrial, but he says it's from other worlds. And this source told the priest that Atlantis was about to be destroyed and told the priest that it was important that they preserve the records of Atlantis. So, the priest then formed these three groups, and we know the names of, of uh, the people in some of the three groups, and the three and they produced three identical sets of records, and the records were written on stone tablets. each set of records contains thirty two stone tablets, and the thirty two stone tablets contain the history of humanity from the first true human beings, which it goes back to about 200,000 B.C., according to Casey. He said the first real humans in human form bodies, like ours, occurred around 200,000 years ago. And he said that from that time until the destruction, that history was written on those 32 tablets. The Atlantean priest came up with these three groups. One of the groups took their set of tablets, and they took some other artifacts with them but they took their set of tablets to what we now know to be Piedras Negras in Guatemala. Piedras Negras is on the Asuma Center River. It is an incredible site. Uh, It's very dangerous. It's extremely difficult to get to. Uh, It's dangerous uh, because it's remote. It takes uh, eight hours down a river to get there, and that river uh, is used by drug runners, and also, uh, people coming up from Central America trying to come to America illegally. Sure. Uh, but any in any event, we know that one site. My wife and I have been there. Uh, it's it's an it's a fascinating place. The second place uh, was called the Island of Poseidon, which Casey said was the main island. The main island was actually um, what would be Andros Island and Bimini and the entire Great Bahama Bank uh, and near. Bimini, they built a temple, a fellow by the name of Atlan built it. The one that went to uh, Guatemala was called Iltar. The man who who made it near Bimini was called Atlan. Atlan built a temple uh, off of Bimini and then put the tablets there. That temple we know sank. Casey said that that one sank uh, in 10,500 B.C. Okay. The third place, uh, which is the one that has clearly gotten the most attention was at Giza, under, it's actually accessed near the Sphinx. It's off the right paw of the Sphinx. Uh, And Casey said there's a a way to enter it. Uh, He gave a lot of instructions about how to enter this. Uh, But the third hall of records uh, in Giza is in a, it's in a rock-hewn chamber uh, that a tunnel system leads to. Uh, again, somewhere under the Sphinx. And loads of research has been done there. Uh, the UK's Andrew Collins uh, may well have found an actual way into it uh, in, over the last few years uh, and Andrews actually entered some of the tunnels there. and that that's another story. it's a that's a really interesting story. It's sure, a lot of controversy.
0: Sure we'll we'll come uh, back to that. That's
1: where the three are. Go
0: ahead sure we'll come back to that now was it not said that you have to be in the right frame of mind to get into the hall of records I mean, To enter
1: the hall of yeah he said that to to actually enter it two things have to be uh, present the first thing is it has to be the right time he he said over and over that the records will not be found until the world is ready for them whatever exactly that meant and Uh, We know a couple things that he meant by that. He meant that uh, they can't be used for evil. Uh, Apparently, well, it's not apparently, it's for certain. There is, uh, in those records, are instructions for using these crystals, this crystal technology, which he did say quite specifically it was used as a weapon. Uh, But it sounds to me, I'll go back to this briefly, it sounds to me like they were focusing the, the rays of the sun into a heat beam almost like a laser but a beam of, of heat almost like a person would go out with a magnifying glass uh, and maybe cook an egg on the road by focusing the sun's light through the magnifying glass that's what the, the crystal sounds like but he said that there were instructions about this and he called it a fire stone uh, it, became, it originally started out as what they called the white stone then became the tui stone when it was the Tui Stone, it was used to communicate with uh, what he called the spirit realm. And then it became the Fire Stone when they realized that they could use it for destructive purposes. So those directions are in these halls of records. Uh, but it, so th- he said that when we're ready, we could discover it. Uh, however, he said the people that discover it, they have to be in the correct mind frame too, that they can't have selfish purposes uh he did say the one in Egypt would be entered by two men and one woman that was very specific uh and interestingly when andrew collins uh, entered the tunnel system there were two men uh and one woman uh and all three of those were from the uk
0: okay now talking about andrew then i mean what has andrew discovered just recently
1: well uh it's a it's a it's kind of a long story but back uh I want to say 2006, Andrew had a book come out called The Cygnus Mystery. And in The Cygnus Mystery, one of the things that he showed in it was that the Cygnus constellation, which is also known, Native Americans called it uh, the Northern Cross, uh, but it's mainly known as a swan or a bird. What Andrew showed was that if you overlaid the three cross stars of Cygnus onto the Giza Plateau, these three stars would lay precisely on the apexes of the three main pyramids there. Now, the interesting thing to me and to a lot of others, we ask Andrew, where, what's under the other stars? And what he found is he started by, by searching the ones uh, near the Sphinx. He found that there was a hill, uh, it's called Gebel Ghibli, Ghibli, sorry, Ghibli, Ghibli, <laughs> Ghibli. Uh, it is a a hill that looks almost like a uh, like the remains of a of a very uh crude pyramid and Edgar Casey actually said that there was a uh, a hidden pyramid there under a mound, and that's what we believe Gebel Ghibli is uh, next to it though Andrew found a well uh, surprisingly which is in a closed and guarded Muslim cemetery that tourists cannot get into uh, I won't go through the details, but Andrew managed to get in to the, and look at the well and get photos of it and interviewed people about it. And they said that the well, the base of the well, actually has a tunnel system that goes toward the Sphinx. Uh, so that was the first piece of this. Then he became interested in what was, what was under the stars on the other side of Giza. And so he started searching, and at first he found nothing. Then he and a Nigel um, Skinner Simpson, who is an amateur Egyptologist in the U.K., and Andrew's wife, Sue Collins, went to Giza and found this tomb, which Andrew has called the Tomb of the Birds. Uh, That's not its official designation, but it was thought to be an unimportant tomb, uh, Mastaba, uh, some distance, uh, I think it's about 300 yards from the Great Pyramid. The ARE, the Edgar Casey organization, funded Andrew's trips there. I believe they funded three of his trips to Giza, and in his second trip, they went back into this tomb. And Andrew, it's it was totally dark. Uh, he got he was surrounded by the secret police several times because it's an area where tourists don't go. Yeah. Uh, and just through talking to them and saying that they were just interested in, in going in and Nigel uh, Skinner Simpson was, was known to them, they decided, okay, we'll let them in. And so the Egyptians didn't go inside the tomb with them. And it's actually almost like a catacomb. It's a, it's a tomb that, that extends for about 45 feet, and it has uh, small enclosures to the left and to the right. Uh, He wound up going all the way to the very back. And then in a niche, which was uh, elevated, he saw an opening that was maybe three feet tall, two feet wide, that had broken through the wall. And he hadn't ever noticed it. He hadn't noticed it the prior times he was there. So he crawled up on the top of this and peered through. And he could tell it was open back there. And he put a flashlight through. And what he saw back there was an, an enormous natural cave, uh, and this was the beginning of this natural cave system, and that was the first time that he saw it. The three of them then entered this cave system. They didn't have, uh, you call it a torch, uh, we call it a flashlight here. Yeah. When, when you say the word torch in America, everybody thinks that you have one of those sticks that has some cloth wrapped around the end right. and it's, okay. uh, you have fire on it. Uh, But here we call it a flashlight. So he went in, and they only had a couple of small torches or flashlights, uh, and they went into this pitch-black area and started walking. And it's actually very dangerous. We know it's more dangerous now than they did than, than when they first went in. They managed to go back about 75 yards the first time, or 75 meters, and they got loads of photos. Uh, unfortunately, though, when they got back in, they got sort of giddy and realized there wasn't enough oxygen in there. And so they, when they came out, they looked at their photos later, and their photos were just incredible. It showed that this was a huge tunnel system and that cave, that, that uh, entrances and passageways went different directions. Uh, they did see that there were several places where human carvings had been made into the wall. And so they, they went home, back to the U.K., got more funding from the ARE, and they bought more torches, and they also bought some breathing apparatus. They went back over, managed to get back in again, uh, again with some trouble, and went all the way to an area where it narrowed down to a tube. They went in over 100 meters, got to a narrow tube, and started crawling through it. And then they saw white widow spiders, which are the same thing as a black widow spider. But because they are underground and there's no light, their, their skin, the skin of the, the spider, becomes white. Uh, they're albinos. I, I'm not sure if you pronounce it albinos, but in the U.S. we say albinos. Uh, but anyway, that kind of scared them. And there were loads of bats. In fact, Andrew got hit in the face with a bat several times. But they got a lot more pictures. He did more research then and talked to people, and they said there was a, that the, the mythology was there was this giant snake that was guarding this thing. This, this, uh, the caves led toward the Great Pyramid. And like I say, they did not reach the end of it. They only got to where it narrowed down to a tube of maybe about a foot in diameter, and they started crawling through, and they could hear some sound. They were afraid of bats. And then they saw these spiders, and that's what scared them, and they turned around.
0: So could this be so the whole... That of... is... Go ahead.
1: It could very... See, Andrew, Andrew now believes that this leads, and there's good reason for it, he believes that this leads under the second pyramid, or the middle pyramid, and he thinks it leads to the chamber, perhaps the Chamber of Poth, or what is called uh, the Cave of Hermes, Hermes... Uh, was the first, uh, leader or enlightened person in Egypt. And supposedly Hermes was buried under the second pyramid in a, in a cave tomb chamber with these emerald tablets in his hands, uh, or on top of his sarcophagus. Uh, and Andrew believes this may lead there. Now what Andrew has found since he did all this, he has found, uh, ground-penetrating radar that is that is being done from satellites. This is relatively new technology. And I have looked at these images also. Uh, this is as high-tech as it gets today. And you can actually see in these, these satellite images, you can see the cave system where he entered it uh, at this tomb of the birds and you can follow the pathway. You can see it on this ground-penetrating radar image that leads to the Uh, right to under the second pyramid. Andrew thinks it probably also leads to this well, and between the second pyramid to the Sphinx to the well is where the Hall of Records should be. Uh, There's long been a rumor that there's a labyrinth, a, a labyrinth of tunnels and caves under Giza, but of course a labyrinth has never been found. they found lots of tombs and lots of chambers, but nobody's ever found an interconnected cave system until now, Uh, and his book is is called Beneath the Pyramids, and it came out uh, last year. It was actually published by the Casey organization's new imprint called Fourth Dimension Press, but that book has become a bestseller. Uh, It's extremely popular, and it it has become highly controversial. Uh, Interestingly, Zahi Hawass was shown. This is little-known stuff. Uh, The director of the A.R.E., His name is John Van Auken, flew to uh, Cairo and had a meeting with Zahi. Zahi is actually very friendly with the Casey organization privately. In public, it's another story. Um, The ARE does, in fact, fund a lot of research in Egypt through what I'll call secondary and tertiary organizations. So the money would flow from the ARE to uh, more mainstream organizations Uh, so that it doesn't come directly from the cave organization. Zahi Zahi was shown the photos of the cave system uh, about a year before the book came out, and he was astonished. He said that he has no idea what this is or where it is, and it is completely unknown to them. Andrew then sent Zahi, I was with Andrew uh, when he made this report, uh, showing photos and describing it and so on, and he sent it to Zahi. Uh, and like I said, I was with him, so I know these details really well. And he, they requested that the tunnel system be closed uh, be, and that people did not have access because there's probably a lot of archaeological remains there, and someone else could sneak in here or sneak in at night and loot it if there's anything in there. Uh, They don't guard these. There's no guardian for the site. That's what the Egyptians call the people who who sit around and watch everything. There was no guardians there at night. They believe that it's fairly secure, but it's not. So uh, he sent this to Zahi, and Zahi essentially ignored it. And then a lot of reports came out on the Internet, and MSNBC and Discovery and others, Uh, CNN actually did a report on it, uh, and they talked about the discovery of a cave system under Giza. Zahi then issued on his Internet website saying uh, a report that said people should not pay any attention to the Internet. This is an unsubstantiated huh. report and that this does not exist.
0: Right, okay.
1: Which was... Insane. I, I, I see that as absolutely insane. I don't, I don't understand where he was coming from, except I know Zahi was embarrassed by this whole thing.
0: So where's the future uh, of this tunnel, then? Where's the future? Oh, dev- uh, well,
1: the future, the future is now. What has happened is this. As soon as Zahi issued his report, as, as long ago as this past August, Zahi dispatched a team, which Zahi himself, uh, in, e- in an email which I have, says that they have dispatched a team of archaeologists zoologists, geologists, and diggers to fully excavate the tomb system and the caves. Since, since that occurred, another British fellow, his name is Richard Gabriel, has entered the tomb system secretly, and he took a couple hundred photos. Now, this is after the excavations began, and these are now in the Internet. He's got uh, 30, about 100 photos on the Internet right now. They have completely cleared the tombs. That's the entranceway leading into the caves. Interestingly, in the tombs, they discovered two downward staircases that that go down into chambers, and those lead to a tunnel system which was unknown to Zahi or any... It's not on any of the uh, official records of what's at Giza. You know, they keep an official list of everything there, a catalog system. So they've already discovered in the tomb itself, we're not even talking about the caves now, but in the tomb, they have discovered these downward passages that lead to more catacombs. And in the cave system, they have started clearing it, which we know because you can see the tools were in there. You can see the tools laying around which I think Richard Gabriel probably entered the system at nighttime. There's no other way to get in because they were working in the daytime. And they have now found that they have found a lot more in the caves, uh, which that's why I said it's a lot more dangerous than Andrew ever thought when he went in, because there are a lot more openings, some of which go down. Uh, And Andrew himself was afraid that they might fall into some sort of a pit when they were in, because this is pitch black when you look at the photos you think it's well lit but it's only because they had flashes the flash would go off on the camera and illuminate everything but they had little tiny flashlights when they were in there so they couldn't see hardly anything. okay so, so it's that's a ca- where it stands right now
0: so it's a case of watch this space and uh, when you come on next you may have more to uh, discuss with us on, on the progress oh
1: my yeah you Andrew Andrew can tell you a lot although I'm not Andrew wants to stay uh, friendly with Zahi and the officials there. Uh, but Zahi has has issued a new press release and said that he has some exciting announcements to make, which he's going to make in the next couple months. So I suspect that they're going to open up the tomb system, not the caves, but the tomb system to the public because they found some pretty incredible things there. The cave system is so dangerous and and difficult to enter, uh, I doubt they'll open that to tourists, but I'm not sure what they found there. But Zahi's obviously very, very excited by it.
0: So I suppose maybe Ed, Ed Casey wasn't too far off then with uh, some of his predictions as such. I mean, can you? Can you? Would you like? Is it? Is it easy to tie in what you're saying with with what he's said? I mean, is that?
1: Well, yeah, Casey said that there was a a, a, a tunnel system, an extensive tunnel system under Giza. Uh, We're actually, uh, Andrew's focusing on uh, Giza. He has been with us to Bimini. We're actually very interested in uh, an area that is uh, not what people call the Bimini Road, which this has now been on a couple of uh, uh, American documentaries and series. We've made 12 different TV shows now, uh, and two of them talk about this relatively new formation off Bimini on, in 100 feet of water, 100 to 110 feet of water, which was actually the 10,000 B.C. shoreline. And, and what was found there was actually a, an American archaeologist by the name of Bill Donato working for the ARE, who first found this with side-scan sonar, but he wasn't able to dive it. And it's a series of about 35 square and rectangular formations in 100 to 110 feet of water sitting right at the top of the 10,000 BC shoreline so that that fits Casey perfectly the reason that area was looked at uh, it's not near the Bimini Road but the reason this area was looked at because a Casey reading specifically said to look in this area uh... really away from what is called the Bimini Road so Bimini is coming along too some pretty interesting things have been found there as far as I'm concerned, the most interesting thing we have personally found are planes that disappeared into the Bermuda Triangle. We have, my wife and I have now found 22 crashed planes, two of which are definite Bermuda Triangle planes, uh, both, both of which disappeared in 1968. Uh, one of them was a very important DC-3 that carried 31 people, disappeared 50 miles off of Miami, and that's precisely where we found the DC-3, and that was actually with a British film crew making a show uh, which has already been on the National Geographic. Uh, that's the, one of the best-made shows I've ever seen. They did a superb job with it. So that's what we have been doing. We're focusing on Bimini. Andrew's focusing on Egypt.
0: Okay. And with the connection with the pyramids and Atlantis, was was in your opinion, was the uh, pyramids part of Atlantis?
1: My opinion... You know, I... <sighs> People think that that we're true believers in everything Casey said, and that we, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I know that uh, the oldest structures in uh, Egypt, actually American mounds and South American pyramids, are far older than anything in Egypt. Egypt Egyptian pyramids go, Egyptian mounds go back to about three thousand five hundred BC, and that sounds like it's very old. But the pyramids are. Due date to about 2800 BC. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. Casey said that the Atlanteans in 10,500 BC brought civilization to that area. That's what he said. Uh, I don't see any evidence of that, but I don't see any. I don't see any proof that it's not true. Uh, so I don't know. Casey also said that that's where the mound builders in America started, as well as the higher civilizations, uh, say, in, in Peru and in the Andes uh, and some of the other areas in South America. There's real good evidence that, it's, that, the, that uh, South America was occupied around the time Casey said it was with high civilizations. So I'm, I've, been, I've focused far more on South America and Central America and Casey's readings about that, and I believe a lot of what he said there, there is real evidence. I just don't know as much about Egypt, and I'm pretty much noncommittal on it. I know what Andrew found is real. Yeah. I know that there is a labyrinth under it, and it does match what Casey said, but we don't have a date that goes back to 10,500 B.C. there, whereas in South America and the United States, we do. We do have dates that go back to that. Okay. Different...
0: Okay, Greg. What's your website,
1: please? Uh, it's www.mysterious-america.net. Mysterious-america.net. Uh, that's our main website for this. And if you're interested in Edgar Casey, it's edgarcasey.org. E D G A R C A Y C E dot o r g.
0: Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Kevin, it's always a pleasure, and maybe next time we'll have uh, more.
0: To find out more about Greg Little, go to www.mysteriousamerica.net. Well, from myself and all my guests, until next time, be safe.